So we've been talking about the feasts um, of the Jewish calendar. These were the feasts that God gave to the Israelites in the book of Leviticus. And um, the Israelites set their calendars around these feasts every year, no matter what. They, they, were, um, they would stop what they were doing to observe these feasts. So is the projector, it looks like the projector's on, so I'll show you the feasts we've talked about so far. Now remember, there were spring feasts and there were fall feasts. So the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the first fruits happened um, right in a row within a week's time of each other. Uh, at the beginning of spring, right about this time of year. So every year those three feasts would happen. Then you would count off 50 days, and sort of toward the end of, um, toward the end of spring you would have the Feast of Weeks, also called the Pentecost. And then you would have your main harvest season for another 50, 60 days or so. And the first day of the seventh month, you would begin the fall feasts. The, the trumpet, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths, or tents. And every year, you would celebrate those seven feasts. Now, what I want to remind you is that we said that the feasts are rehearsals. God said that they were rehearsals for people. And so, um, the Passover, you know, the feasts were implemented 1,500 years before the time of Jesus, and they pointed forward. So, the Passover was a practice so to speak, where at 3 p.m. you would sacrifice a lamb on Passover, and that was fulfilled with the crucifixion of Jesus. Then the Feast of Unleavened unleavened Bread uh, pointed and was fulfilled to the burial of Jesus. Then the Feast of the Firstfruits pointed to the resurrection of Jesus. Fifty days later, Feast of Weeks was fulfilled with the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it all pointed to the time frame of Jesus 1,500 years after they were implemented. Then we skip forward to the Feast of Trumpets, which has not yet been fulfilled. That will be fulfilled on the last trumpet call when Jesus returns. So if the Pentecost was fulfilled right around 30 A.D., and the next feast is fulfilled in the future, then that means we live right now in the summertime, in the time of the harvest. And this is why Jesus says that we need to, as his followers, look at people like a ripe harvest, like God is reaping souls right now, drawing people to himself, and we live in the harvest time the time where God is actively bringing in His people. And we need to be active in joining Him in that pursuit. Alright, so today we're going to talk about the Feast of Trumpets. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Leviticus 23. We're going to talk about the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement today. And I'm going to read to you from Leviticus 23, down in verse 23. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, on the first day of the seventh month, you are to have a day of rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. Do no regular work, but present an offering made to the Lord by fire. So when they talk about an assembly, they t- what they tend to mean is you gather together in Jerusalem by the temple as a nation. So the harvest is nearing completion. 
And you gather together in Jerusalem where trumpets or shofars, as they were called, are blasted. The question is, why would you blast trumpets? Why would you get everybody together to blast a trumpet? If you'll flip over now to the book of Ezekiel. Give you a few minutes to get there. Feel free to use the table of contents in the front of your Bible to find Ezekiel 33. Or you can cheat and look behind me. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your countrymen and say to them, when I bring the sword against the land when an army comes in to invade. And the people of the land choose one of their men to make him their watchman. And he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet, the shofar, to warn the people. Then if anyone hears the trumpet, but does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes his life, his blood will be on his own head. Since he heard the sound of the shofar, the trumpet, but did not take warning, his blood will be on his own head. If he had taken warning, he would have saved himself. So you get the idea in the context of the ancient world what the trumpet was blown for. It was a warning. So you're out in your, you know, your backyard and you're doing some yard work and it's July and it's windy and the black clouds are coming and it starts to rain and blow and then all of a sudden everything gets silent. And then you hear it. And you know it's the, that, it's, that either the Canadians are bombing Marblehead or it's a tornado coming. And so you do what you need to do because there's a dangerous situation coming your way. You're, 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 you're taking proper steps because something of significance is coming your way. The trumpet was a warning. A warning for what? Back in Leviticus. Hope you kept your finger there. <coughs> Ten days after the Feast of Trumpets, after the trumpets were blown, Verse 26, chapter 23, verse 26, The Lord said to Moses, The tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves, that means fast, and present an offering made to the Lord by fire. Do no work on that day because it is a day of atonement. When atonement is made for you before the Lord your God. Now atonement is the whole idea of being made right with God, forgiveness of sins, covering over, that kind of thing. Anyone who does not deny himself or fast on that day must be cut off from his people. I will destroy from among his people anyone who does any work on that day. You shall do no work at all. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. It is a Sabbath of rest for you, and you must deny yourselves. From the evening of the ninth day of the month until the following evening, you are to observe your Sabbath. So the Day of Atonement was the day when you would face your God symbolically as a nation and be either forgiven 
or not forgiven. So it would be like God looking at this people group in this room and saying, on April 10th, you will come to the church building and stand before me and I will either forgive you or not forgive you. This is a big deal. And so what would happen is the trumpet would sound and that would usher in what the Jews would call the ten days of awe. And in the ten days of awe, what the Jews would do is as a people, they would lay themselves out before God and think through everything that they had done in the past year, recalling all of their sins and the junk in their life. So that ten days later on the Day of Atonement, when God was going to either forgive them or not, they had brought all of their stuff before God for forgiveness. Now think about that as it relates to our life today. What if you knew that you were about to stand before God? The God who knows every thought that you've had in the past month, everything that you have said about the driver in front of you, everything that you have looked at on the internet. He knew how you treated your spouse. He knew how faithful you were or were not to the vows that you made with your spouse. He knew the conversations that you've had at work and on the phone. He knows what you've said about everybody behind their back and or to their face. And you are now going to stand before this God who knows all that with your one chance at forgiveness. That's a pretty heavy moment. And when we think about the God of the universe who is holy and pure and who judges the sins of people, and we think about where we stand in relation to Him by our sins, this can be pretty overwhelming. But what we need to remember when we think about standing before God as sinful people in the presence of one with no sin, what we need to remember is that while God is a God of wrath, He is also a loving and forgiving God. Now there's a passage in Joel that I want to look at real quick here. Um kind of, I think, ties this whole Day of Atonement thing together. (coughs) Joel, chapter 1. Hear this, you elders. Listen to all who live in the land. So he's appealing first to the spiritual giants of of the community. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your forefathers? Tell it to your children. And let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarms has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. So you get this idea of this plague of locusts that has hit the community, and it's an agricultural community, and there was probably nothing more terrifying than hearing the swarms of locusts come in and destroy, like rip bare everything in their path. Down in verse 10, The fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up. The The oil fails. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers, grieve for the wheat and the barley, 
because the harvest of the field is destroyed. So harvest time is now over and you got nothing. Olives and grapes are destroyed in the fruit harvest. Wheat and barley are destroyed in the grain harvest. The locusts have destroyed everything. Verse 16. Has not the food been cut off before, your, before our very eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down, for the grain has dried up. How the cattle moan. The herds mill about because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. Everybody is in pain from this massive plague of locusts. Day of Atonement, Feast of Trumpets language. Chapter 2, 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on the holy hill, that's Jerusalem. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army, the locusts, Come, such as never was of old, nor ever will be in ages to come. Verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, in spite of all this mess, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger, abounding in love, he relents from sending calamity. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call the sacred assembly, gather the people. So if we look at this, what is the cause of the damage from the locusts? Sin. Because God says, return to me in spite of all that's happened. And then in 18 it says, Then the Lord will be jealous for his land and take pity on his people. The Lord will reply, I am sending you grain, new wine and oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you the object of scorn. I will drive the northern army far from you, pushing it into the the parched and barren land. He's talking about the locusts, driving them away. 22, be not afraid, wild animals, for open pastures are becoming green, trees are bearing fruit, fig tree and vine yield their riches. O be glad, people of Jerusalem, rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you autumn rains of righteousness. He sends you abundant showers, autumn and spring rains. He talks about the threshing floors and things coming to life again. God's point here is that even though things are terrible because of sin, when we think about the sin of our life and and a, a wrathful God who judges sin because He's holy, even in the midst of those judgments when we feel like we have done horrible things, the point of Joel is that God is gracious and compassionate. And when we sound the trumpet and take our sin before Him, He is a God who loves to forgive and loves to restore and loves to bless. So what we're going to do here is we're going to take up an offering and then we're going to have a little time of worship. And let this be our time to blow the trumpet and think about where we've been this past week. Think about where our eyes have been, our hands have been, our minds have been, our words have been.
then take our sins before God. This is our time to get right with God. Think about that now. Take up an offering and then worship and then we'll talk a little bit more about the Day of Atonement in a few minutes. So, it was the Feast of Trumpets and you have been observing the days of awe, laying before God, thinking through um, the, the sin in your life, the issues that you have. Um, and now, ten days later, it's time for the Day of Atonement, the next of the, of the fall feasts. And remember that we said that the feasts are really rehearsals that God is sort of um, training people for 1,500 years so that they understand his redemptive plan. Okay, now, the Day of Atonement was a very... Phil, what's, what's, what day for you? What, what day here does your world revolve around? What day of the year? What's the biggest day of the year for you? Quick. What's that? Daytona. Daytona. Okay, okay. Racing guy. What, what's that? Um, might as well say World Cup or something like that. <laughs> something ridiculous like that. Um, Christmas, Easter, um, Jean, Easter. Um, okay, for, for me, wedding anniversary. Um, guys are like, dang! Um, if you were an audience of Jews, every single one, Day of Atonement, Day of Atonement, Day of Atonement, Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement was the high holy day um, for, for your life revolved around the Day of Atonement. So the trumpet sounded, you spent your 10 days in awe. Now let's talk about uh, the Day of Atonement, what happened on the Day of Atonement, and specifically, is there anything that God was training us for for 1,500 years before Jesus was sacrificed on the cross to provide atonement for the world. Now, one of the ways that we have learned over the past few weeks that we find those symbolisms is to look for quirks. Like, look for little oddities in the, the scripture that describes the feast. So let's go back to Leviticus 23 and read again the language in Leviticus for the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 23. Looking for anything that stands out that maybe God is trying to make a point with, okay? The Lord said to Moses, The tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves fast. Present an offering made to the Lord by fire. Do no work on that day because it's the day of atonement when atonement's made for you before the Lord your God. Anyone who does not deny himself or fast on that day must be cut off from his people I will destroy from among his people anyone who does any work on that day. You shall do no work at all. This is a lasting ordinance for this generation to come wherever you live. It is a Sabbath, which means do no work. You must fast from the evening of the ninth day of the month until the following evening you are to observe Sabbath. So if there's a general thing that God is stuck on, with the Day of Atonement, <clears throat> he seems to think it's important that for your well-being, you do no work. Don't eat, 
Don't do any work. He says it over and over again in that little paragraph. Do no work. Because I think that one of the things that God is trying to help his people to understand is when it comes to atonement, when it comes to forgiveness of sins, that's his work. That's the work that he does. And it's nothing that we can work toward to earn. He reminds the Israelites over and over again, while you were slaves in Egypt, remember that I came in and I set you free. And if we look forward to Ephesians chapter 2, if anyone here wants to know what you have to do to be right with God, how good you have to be, how much scripture you have to know, how long you have to go without lying before you can be right with God. Ephesians 2.8 For it is by grace, undeserved gift, undeserved, unworked for, you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So the first timeless kind of rehearsing principle that we see in the Day of Atonement is when the people are told to think about forgiveness, the one thing that they have to get right on that day, do no work. Because it's not about gaining from our efforts. Atonement is something that God does. Forgiveness is something that is an act of grace, undeserved favor. Let's look at another rehearsing principle that God did. Now, some of these things, like when God had the Israelites slay a lamb at 3 p.m. on the Passover, 1,500 years later, Jesus was slain at 3 p.m. on the Passover. So they're practicing, you know, that, that kind of building that into the DNA. Well, one of the things that we're going to see with the Day of Atonement as you turn to Leviticus 16... God sets some symbolism in place. For 1,500 years up to the death of Jesus, on the Day of Atonement, Jews had seen two sacrifices, two images. One was that of a goat dying on the altar for forgiveness of their sins. The other was that of an innocent goat leaving the city to die for the sins of of the Israelites. One imagery, innocent being sacrificed on an altar for forgiveness. Also, innocent being led out of the city to die for the sins of the Israelites. If you look down in verse, in verse 7, then he is to take two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. You ever heard the phrase scapegoat? Sure you have. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as a scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as the scapegoat. Now he goes on 
to walk through what happens. And the word he uses in Hebrew is the word release. The goat is taken out into the desert and released. Now, Hebrew word for release can be translated either release or to throw down. And when we look at Jewish history from reliable sources, what we learn is that what the Jews began to do and did up to the time of Jesus and beyond even was someone would be appointed to take the scapegoat. And I always thought that this was like the lucky goat because he got to walk out of the city, you know, unharmed. But what I've learned from study this past week is that that representative would walk the goat out of the city and release or throw down. He would push the goat off a cliff. And there the goat would pay the price for sin. So for 1,500 years, up to the time of Jesus, on the Day of Atonement, the Jews would select someone to walk the goat outside of the city and kill it for the forgiveness of sins. So the imagery associated with atonement was that of walking the innocent outside the city for forgiveness. Now, we said that for 1,500 years, they rehearsed the crucifixion at the Passover. For 1,500 years, they rehearsed the placement of Jesus' body in the tomb with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For 1,500 years, they rehearsed the resurrection on the Feast of Firstfruits. For 1,500 years, they rehearsed the gift of the Holy Spirit at the Feast of Weeks. <clears throat> Think maybe with that little quirk, they're rehearsing something? Because that seems odd, doesn't it? That you would walk a goat outside the city and kill it for forgiveness. Well, trivia question. Jesus is standing before Pilate. Pilate has decided there's nothing else he can do. He needs to die. What do the people tell Pilate? That's one of the things that they tell him. But after all that's been done, and they know it's Jesus, he's, the, he's, the, he's in the crosshairs now, they tell, they tell Pilate, I would have said crucify him too until I studied. Now, let's look at John chapter 19. I didn't, that, that sounded bad. I just happened to study this particular concept this past week. Because I've studied before. Um, John 19, verse 9. Pilate asked Jesus, where do you come from? Jesus gave him no answer. The mighty Pilate says, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or crucify you? And Jesus looks at him. Jesus answered him. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Now, something about the way Jesus says that. Okay, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. On down, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judge's seat at the place known as the stone pavement, and he says, Here is your king. 
But they shouted, take him away. And the Bible says in a few verses later that he was led outside the city. And he was crucified. So for 1,500 years, this was so planned by God. For 1,500 years, the Jews walked the innocent outside of the city for forgiveness of their sins. And then, with the Lamb of God, the innocent Lamb of God, 1,500 years later, they would walk him outside the city and kill him for the forgiveness of sins. It's incredible how active God's hand has been, how focused he's been on redemption of the world. There's one more principle that we need to hit, and that's this idea of transfer. Now, the Bible says that when when the priest would take the scapegoat, he would place both his hands on the head of the goat and transfer the sins of the people on to the head of the goat. And then that goat died for the sins of the people. This is a very important point to understand because we all have a death penalty to be paid for our sins. But that death penalty has already been paid because of this idea of transfer. It's called substitutionary atonement. If you look in Colossians chapter 1, Very, very, very important verse in Scripture. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things. Reconciliation and atonement are essentially the same thing. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now... He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Paul's point is that the death penalty has been paid for you. Just like that goat was paying the death penalty for atonement. Jesus paid that penalty once and for all, for all of us. It has all been done for us. No work of our own. It's sealed by faith. But the work has been done. God showed, 1500 B.C., that he wanted the world to revolve around his redemption of people. It has been on God's mind and in God's heart for centuries. Centuries and centuries and centuries. God has been thinking and rehearsing for the day he paid the price for your sins. And these feasts are rehearsals to think about that. Now we have a rehearsal that Jesus gave us. And we observe that every week at Polaris. Jesus told his disciples, his followers, I'm about to pay the price for the sins of the world. And you take a cup of juice and remember the blood that was shed on your behalf. 
and you take a piece of bread and remember the body that was broken for the forgiveness and the establishment of a new promise with God. And he says, I won't drink this with you again until we're in the kingdom together. So that's on their mind. And it's as if every time we gather together and take communion, we are remembering the Day of Atonement when Jesus paid the price for our sins, but also practicing for that day in the future when all sin is gone, when all death is gone, and we are all together with our Savior who paid that price, drinking and eating and celebrating. And that day will come, but until then, we practice with communion. 